Hello, my friends. Uh, tonight, I talk about a thousand Jewish children who were forced to evacuate their school because of a bomb threat, not in Israel, but right here in Canada. And I'll show you the deafening silence of Trudeau's response. That's all I had. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. And uh, frankly, we rely on that to pay our bills because we don't get any money from Trudeau. And it shows. All right, here's today's podcast. Shame on you, you censorious bug. I'm in Calgary behind me. Christmas decorations were almost at that time of year. I'm in town because last night I was at the Ben Shapiro speech in Calgary and tomorrow Rebel News Live is having our day-long conservative conference. It's amazing. So many great people are going to be there. A lot of rebel on-screen talent. Sheila Gunn-Reed, myself, David Menzies, Dre Humphrey, Alexa Lavoie. It's going to be a ton of talent, plus a lot of our friends from the world of ideas, whether it's Billboard Chris. There'll be a conservative MP bringing word from that party. There'll be uh, Tamara Leach playing with her husband a musical interlude. Did you know she's in a rock band? That's all tomorrow, but let me get back to the news of the day. As I mentioned, a thousand Jews from Canada's largest Jewish high school were evacuated because there was a bomb threat. Here's a copy of the threat itself. Um, whether or not it was a hoax, uh, it looks like it was a hoax, but that still has the desired effect of terrorizing and terrifying a thousand students and their parents. The whole place was evacuated. The kids were taken to a nearby synagogue to shelter in place. And uh, not a peep from Justin Trudeau as at the hour I'm recording this. He's busy hobnobbing with, well, looking by his Twitter feed, the world's worst anti-Semites. Here he is with Anwar Ibrahim, I think he said the president of Malaysia now, who has a an atrocious track record of saying anti-Semitic things. But of course, let me ask you, if the largest Muslim high school in Canada had a bomb threat that everyone had to flee, do you think Trudeau would ignore the matter? It's pretty gross, but we're coming, we're sort of used to Trudeau doing that now. He was in, uh, he was asked today about uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese dictator who recently visited San Francisco um, for a meeting of various uh, world leaders. Um, let me show you two videos back to back. Here's Joe Biden being asked if he believes that Xi Jinping is a dictator. And miraculously, Sleepy Joe actually gets it right. And after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that we used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that based on so Joe Biden, who has an enormous and important relationship with China, says, yeah, he's a dictator. Justin Trudeau, that fool, that coward, who had two Canadians held as hostage for nearly three years, when he was asked the same questions, he refused to say that, that Xi Jinping was a dictator. Look at this atrocious answer. Steve Chase, Globe and Mail. Would you describe Xi Jinping as a dictator? China's a one-party state. 
I don't think anyone would call it a democracy. In 2013, you described uh, China as a basic dictatorship. Mr. Xi was already in charge. Mr. Biden, uh, President of the United States, which is our security guarantor, also called him a dictator. Why won't you call him that? Listen, uh, we can get into uh, all sorts of different uh, uh, definitions. The fact is, he's not running a democracy. It's an authoritarian state. You know, what's so weird about that is that Trudeau praised China for being a basic dictatorship just a few years ago. Remember when he told that to a loving group of liberal donors? There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. Um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to go green as fast as we need to start, you know, investing in solar. I mean, there is a flexibility that I know Stephen Harper must dream about of having a dictatorship that he could do everything he wanted. Uh, that I find quite interesting. You know, Trudeau is harder on the modern democracy, the state of Israel, than he is on the atrocious dictatorship of China that's so gross. Anyways, uh, we dispatched a cameraman uh, to the school in Toronto that faced the bomb threat. Uh, here's a report on the scene from our reporter, Lincoln Jay. Well, this morning the school received an email uh, threat of explosives in the building. Uh, they immediately called 911. Uh, police were here within minutes. They evacuated the school and put, them, uh, put the students at Beth Emmett. Uh, where they were sent home for the day. So there's an all clear here. Uh, there's no threat. Uh, it was obviously a hoax, but it still, it still occurs at a dangerous time uh, where we need everybody to tone down the temperature and to make sure Toronto stays safe and hate-free. Do we know any of the details about where the threat came from? Anything like that? The police are investigating it right now. We don't know where the threat originated from. It came in by email. I trust that, uh, you know, I, I, I trust that police will fully investigate it. These are the kind of crimes that you absolutely have to pursue vigorously because when you've got people who will go to this lane, you don't know how far they'll go. Do you think you're going to see a, a heightened security police presence at Jewish schools, synagogues in the Toronto area? Well, we already have uh, we have police at uh, our synagogues. We have police at uh, Jewish schools as well as private security. Some of them are on duty. Some of them some of them are paid duty. Uh, but you know the 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 reality is that tens of thousands of dollars every week are being sucked from the Jewish community to be safe in a city that should be safe. And there shouldn't be this fear in a, in a city like Toronto. So we need politicians from all levels of government to condemn hate in all its forms, to say that there's zero tolerance, and to make sure there's a strong statement against the roving mobs uh, that are singing hateful chants in our downtown. Final, final question slash comment. What do you have to say about the fact that we're now seeing, you know, kids in Toronto being, you know, targeted as a result of, of this conflict? You know, it's very scary, and uh, it's 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 a new it's a new low. Uh, I don't know what kind of person would would do this. Uh, it's shameful. It's uh, it's hurtful. It sends people home uh, worried and scared. Uh, and that's not what we want in Toronto. We want people 
to feel confident that they can go about their daily lives in peace and security and freedom and not be subject to harassment and hate. And that's exactly what this is. Well, thankfully, it was an idle threat, but like I say, the terror was transmitted. Canada is no longer safe. And um, I think it was Trudeau himself who sort of gave moral permission to every anti-Semite to act out in that way. And I can't just put it all on Trudeau, although by far he's been the worst. Uh, premiers and mayors have most often been silent too, because they can do the same math Trudeau can. There are now five times as many Muslim Canadians as there are Jewish Canadians, and although I would like to hope most Muslims don't support this violence, a significant number of them do, and Trudeau wants their votes. Uh, speaking of which, in Calgary last night, Ben Shapiro gave a speech to a couple thousand people. Some pro-Hamas protesters were there, which is interesting because it was on reserve land, which is sort of a public-private hybrid. You can't just go on an Indian reserve without being invited. They have the political authority to kick you out. So uh, it was odd to me, in a way, that protesters were there given that the band was hosting uh, ben Shapiro, but another way, I think that was sort of an interesting management of the public square. The protesters were allowed to attend, but they were very tightly policed and cordoned off, which I thought was fairly appropriate, although many of the chants, they said, clearly violated hate speech laws, and they may have even violated the criminal code provisions of providing assistance to terror groups. Here's a little bit of video from last night. Ezra Levant here in Calgary. I'm outside the Tsutina Nation. When I was a kid, it was called the Sarsi Reserve. And uh, it's an enormous casino and event complex, which is a perfect place for Ben Shapiro to speak. And there's an enormous crowd. The lineup is huge. They've opened up extra parking lots. I don't know how many folks are here, but it's got to be one of the largest political gatherings in recent times in Calgary. I chatted with a few folks in line. Here's what they had to say. I think it's fantastic as people are here to just hear every side of the story of what's going on. And I think it's a great opportunity for to come out and support Ben Shapiro. Uh, the turnout looks like a large turnout for the Ben Shapiro event. What do you think of that? I think it's awesome. I, I was actually shocked at how many people were actually here. Why do you think? Uh, why do you think it's such a strong turnout? Support for Israel, support for justice, and uh, free Palestine from Hamas. What's interesting is the protesters across the way don't make any bones about it. They're reaching for that Holocaust and Nazi iconography, which is a kind of anti-Semitism to accuse Jews of being Nazis, but that's nothing new. I guess that's a freedom of speech they have here in Canada that they don't have in Gaza. What do you make of the fact that the, this is reserve land, so you can't just come on it without an invitation? But uh, what's your view on having them here? I don't understand why they would have them here in the first place. It doesn't make sense. It's private property. They're hosting uh, somebody to come speak with us, which we choose to do and they're making money on. Why would you bring the opposition or some sort of opposition when this has absolutely nothing to do with Israel in itself right now? I'm surprised that Sutina is letting him protest here. Well, I, I'm glad Sutina's letting him protest. They're, they're keeping him under wraps, but I think it's a free speech moment. What do you it think? Is. I think so too, and it's good. 
It's good optics. That's the thing. In Gaza, if you were to protest against someone you didn't like in Hamas, you'd wind up dead. That's why I get a kick out of those gays for Palestine or LGBTQ for Hamas. They would be thrown off a roof. Free speech is alive in Canada, and I have to salute the Tsutina Nation police force who have things well in hand. As well, our friend Adam Sos sat down with Ben Shapiro to ask him a few questions during his trip. To, to Canada. We clearly live in a sort of world of double, double standard selective enforcement and that's glaringly obvious when you see it whether it whether it be BLM or pro-Hamas protests they can shout genocidal slogans break stuff fight people do whatever they they wish there's no consequence by contrast we saw the freedom convoy that was entirely peaceful they received harsh treatment frozen bank accounts horse tramplings where did this sort of structural division come from? So I think that in the end where it comes from is a false binary between oppressor and oppressed. And, and this really has its roots in Marxist theory. Uh, the, the idea that there's an oppressor class and there's an oppressed class and the more unsuccessful you are, the more oppressed you therefore are and you've been exploited by the system. You're not responsible for your own failures. That's the, that's the fault of the system. And then that got grafted in the last 40, 50 years right. away from class and onto race. And so the idea then was if you're a member of a race, that race earns less than other races, for example. You are now a member of an oppressed race, and that means that you've been exploited, and you can then do anything you want to the oppressor class. Yeah. And it got grafted onto a sort of decolonization narrative that was originally pushed by Franz Fanon and Jean-Paul Sartre, and, and kind of bled its way both down and up. And so now what you see is this idea that if you are a pro-Hamas protester, then this means that you're fighting the oppressor, and therefore you can do literally anything up to and including slaughtering babies in their cribs, and everybody will basically be okay with that. Whereas if you are a disproportionately white group of people who are protesting because your jobs have been taken away from you, right. then you're part of the oppressor class. It doesn't matter if you are not wealthy. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. You're part of the oppressor class because you've participated in the capitalist system, and because you even have a job, and because of your color. And, and that, that really is truly ugly stuff. You know, I've attended a number of these pro-Hamas protests protests in person, and our staff uh, have attended them all around the world, including Alexa Lavoie, who did a great job in London, England recently. And, and I've, I've seen these kind of protests for years, including in Toronto, where every year the embassy, or there's no embassy, rather, the, the agents of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, organize a hateful day called Al-Quds Day, which is basically a big day of anti-Semitism. And they've done it for years, even though it's clearly orchestrated by the government of Iran, which is uh, an Islamic dictatorship. A few days ago, Global News, gotta give them credit, did an incredible expose on the uh, political activities of the Islamic Republic of Iran in Canada, including by their terrorist group, the um, uh, Islamic Republican Guard, the Iranian Republican Guard, which other countries have designated as a terror group, but Trudeau will not. Let me show you an excerpt from that excellent Global News report. An Ontario man who lost his wife and daughter in the tragedy of Ukraine Airlines Flight 752 is speaking out to Global News about the threat he faces. Hamid Esmailioun says he can't escape the Iranian regime, even in Canada. This summer, he was reportedly the target of public threats made by a man visiting Canada as a tourist. That man is a former senior minister in the Iranian government. As Negar Moshtahedi explains, that incident has raised some troubling questions about Canada's security. You might not recognize this man in the background of a news report on Quebec tourism this past summer. But the Iranian diaspora did. His name is Sayed Hassan Qazizadeh Hashimi. He's a former Iranian senior minister reportedly vacationing in Canada. 
He was part of the same administration responsible for shooting down Ukraine Airlines Flight 752 in January of 2020. Dozens of Canadians were killed, including Hamid Ismailiun's wife and nine-year-old daughter. It was outrageous for the whole community. Ismailiun couldn't believe it and called out the Canadian government. He was not an ordinary person. You see that he had a photo with Hassan Nasrullah, the leader of Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization in this country. In response to Ismail Yoon's calls to have him deported, the former minister reportedly fired back with a threat. He was quoted in this Iranian magazine saying, I will retaliate against the treachery of the foreign media outlets and Hamid Ismail Yoon. It made me angry, actually, that why? He's here and he threatens everybody he wants. In late August, Canada's immigration minister tweeted that Hashimi's application for temporary residence was denied and that he was being barred for three years due to, quote, Iran's disregard for human rights. It's just a slap in the face of the community here. This BC immigration lawyer has spent a lot of time documenting what he says is the huge number of Iranian regime officials and their associates who are in Canada. We have about 700 names right now um, that are either have temporary residence, permanent residence, or citizenship that are in Canada and that are somehow regime affiliates. We're still counting, so it's going to be closer to 1,000. Ismailiun, labeled as an enemy of the Islamic Republic, is always watching his back, not able to escape the regime he thought he could leave behind, even in Canada. The Islamic Republic's agents are everywhere in this country, everywhere. Could you imagine as many as 700 foreign agents for the government of Iran running around in Canada terrorizing and terrifying uh, democratic-oriented uh, Iranians, but also organizing so many of these hate rallies? Remember, Hamas itself is organized and funded by Iran. And so too many of these rallies around the world are organized by Iran. And you know from your own life, I'm sure, that political things just don't happen without organization. Political parties expend enormous effort getting their people to turn out at rallies. I know myself as a former political candidate and frankly as someone who hosts events like our Rebel News Live tomorrow, it takes effort to get people to turn out. And so the more of these events I see, the more I see how orchestrated, funded, and planned they are. For example, look at this tweet showing prefabricated pro-Hamas signs en masse about to be distributed. Uh, I, I think that it is so clear from observing who is at these protests that they are not an organic, spontaneous movement. Like, I, I, I will not deny that there are people who are responding to these professional organizer efforts. You can't get 100,000 people to march in London. Not all of them are Iranian agents. But you probably had 1,000 people working to organize it, foreign entities, but also Socialist Workers' Party and other left-wing groups. But I was looking at the crazy case of Laith Marouf, the anti-Semite that Trudeau actually hired to promote anti-racism. And look at some of his recent tweets, absolutely insane on the racist-o-meter. Um, and yet he was hired as an anti-hate expert. And so it dawned on me that actually a leading source of anti-Semitism and, frankly, anti-white hatred, if I may, in Canada comes from the anti-racism industry, particularly anti-racism called DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are professional paid offices, typically at banks, 
at universities, at police forces, at uh, other large quasi-public institutions who on the face of it are there for unity, but they're not really there for unity. Equity and inclusion are not about uni unity and assimilation and integration. They're about including in the West contrary voices to the West. They're about decolonization. And what does decolonization mean? It's cultural Marxism, which means the oppressed get to do anything to get the oppressors. And so, so many of these hate marches across Canada and the United States and the United Kingdom are actually organized not just by foreign agents like Global News has discovered about Iran, and not just by the Socialist Workers' Party and the Communist Party, anything to batter the establishment, but actually the anti-racism industry itself. Now, of course, you also have public sector unions. You can't look anywhere these days in Canada at one of these hate rallies without seeing, for example, Fred Hahn uh, of CUPE is really gross. I think a good way to look at these pro-Hamas rallies is to realize the template set by the Black Lives Matter movements under Barack Obama. Black Lives Matter is an idea, but it's also a corporation. It's an organization. It's a political movement. And uh, during some very bloody and, and fiery riots, it was also a street militia designed to promote shock tactics to destabilize Donald Trump in in the later years of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was all based on woke, critical theory. Like I said, the oppressed getting to do anything against the oppressors. That's the unifying theory. That's why you have gay rights activists siding with Hamas that would normally kill them in Gaza. So I was interested to see this story published in the Free Press, which is an independent news source, um, going deep into some of the funders of the recent pro-Hamas protests. Let me quote, Neville Roy Singham and his wife Jody Evans. Since 2017, Singham has been the main funder of the People's Forum, which has co-organized at least four protests after 1,400 innocent Israelis were slaughtered by Hamas on October 7th. One rally in Times Square happened on October 8th before Israel had even counted its dead. My point is that, of course, there are genuine Palestinians and other Arabs and Muslims who are genuinely concerned about what's happening in Gaza. I'm sure that's true, and I can, I can understand that. By the way, uh, look at this recent poll uh, from uh, Gaza and the West Bank, and I'm not sure how accurate polls in those places are. People are probably too afraid to speak out to pollsters, but three-quarters of Palestinians support Hamas, and I find that terrifying. I'm not saying there is no organic, natural antipathy towards Israel. Of course there is. Anti-Semitism is the oldest hatred. But it is being whipped up by professional activists with money. Just like George Soros bankrolled Black Lives Matter, there are millionaires bankrolling these hate marches around the world. And I tell you that because in a way it makes me feel better to know that some of what we see is artificial that it's ginned up by professional organizers and by foreign countries like Iran. And it also gives us a path to how to fight back. I think step one is to expose the funders and the true nature of these protests. Um, but it also calls for the implementation of certain foreign laws. For example, in Canada, we don't have a foreign agent registry, something that would catch not just Iran's activities here, but China's too. 
That's one of the reasons we set up DeportHamas.com about a month ago and started taking our billboard truck around cities. My point is, if someone is a foreign national here at these hate marches, they should be given the boot. If they're a Canadian citizen, they have certain rights here, freedom of speech, even if it is odious ideas, as long as they don't go so far as to actually provide help to a terrorist group, which is under the criminal code. But for foreign nationals, if you're coming to a hate rally to shout swears and other uh, accusations and insults and anti-Semitism at a Ben Shapiro event, if you're coming there to, to promote anti-Semitism and you're a foreign national, frankly, get the hell out. So those are my thoughts on this day when 1,000 Jewish children had to flee their school because of a terrorist bomb threat. And Trudeau's lack of response tells you really everything you need to know. Stay with us. Rebel News, and we are on location at the Grey Eagle Event Center just outside of Calgary for Ben Shapiro Live. It is an event that is being hosted by the Wilberforce Project, a pro-life political organization that is active here in Alberta. As the name of the event suggests, the star of the evening will be Ben Shapiro, political pundit, co-founder of The Daily Wire, and host of The Ben Shapiro Show. We were very fortunate to secure an exclusive interview with the man himself. Well, uh, Ben, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Going to get straight into some questions here. I suppose my first question for you would be, we, we clearly live in a sort of world of double, double standard, selective enforcement, and that's glaringly obvious when you see it, whether it, whether it be BLM or pro-Hamas protests, they can shout genocidal slogans, break stuff, fight people, do whatever they, they wish, there's no consequence. By contrast, we saw the Freedom Convoy that was entirely peaceful. They received harsh treatment, frozen bank accounts, horse tramplings. Where did this sort of structural division come from? So I think that in the end, where it comes from is a false binary between oppressor and oppressed. And, and this really has its roots in Marxist theory. Uh, the, the idea that there's an oppressor class and there's an oppressed class and the more unsuccessful you are, the more oppressed you therefore are, and you've been exploited by the system. You're not responsible for your own failures. That's the, that's the fault of the system. And then that got grafted in the last 40, 50 years right. away from class and onto race. And so the idea then was, if you're a member of a race, that race earns less than other races, for example. You are now a member of an oppressed race, and that means that you've been exploited, and you can then do anything you want to the oppressor class. Yeah. And it got grafted onto a sort of decolonization narrative that was originally pushed by Franz Fanon and Jean-Paul Sartre, and, and kind of bled its way both down and up. And so now what you see is this idea that if you are a pro-Hamas protester, then this means that you're fighting the oppressor, and therefore you can do literally anything up to and including slaughtering babies in their cribs, and everybody will basically be okay with that. Whereas if you are a disproportionately white group of people who are protesting because your jobs have been taken away from you, right. then you're part of the oppressor class. It doesn't matter if you are not wealthy. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. You're part of the oppressor class because you've participated in the capitalist system, and because you even have a job, and because of your color. And, and that, that really is truly ugly stuff. Now, another group that would certainly participate in this oppression language um, would be the sort of anti-hate groups or the uh, even diversity inclusion type groups on campuses and workplaces right across the board, even in government. One of the things that I've noticed lately, though, is that there's been a sort of concerted shift uh, if, if say a Muslim group is, is shouting anti-Semitic slogans um, or a BLM protest is shouting anti-white slogans that's completely fine these groups seem to exclusively target even the most minor instances of inappropriateness by the people who wouldn't be considered oppressed yeah that, that, that's right I mean the, the, the because 
it's a, it's a power game. And I think that we grant their premise when we pretend that there's an actual legitimate shred of truth to the thing that they're saying. Yeah. It isn't, it's a power struggle. And they say this, they say all institutions are, insti are, are creations of, of power dynamics. They say that, that everything up to and including things like freedom of speech are a reflection of underlying power dynamics. And that really is projection. The, the way they think about everything is in terms of power dynamics. And so they are exercising power over you by claiming victimhood when they're not actually victimized. And then they're expecting you to, to bow to them and come, come to heal. And, and that's the, the more offended you are and the more you cave to that, the more power they have. And that's why the only answer to it is to basically throw up a middle finger and say, you're not oppressed and I'm not oppressing you and you're just yeah. going to have to deal with that. Now, since what we've seen since the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel, uh, do you think that President Trump was right to suggest uh, that, that places with high risks of terrorism, that we should be ceasing all immigration from those places or outright banning it? Yes, I mean, I, I thought that he was right when he said it. I mean, the, the, the location-based immigration ban was, was not only correct, it was in place for part of the Obama administration. I mean, right. there, there were certain places where you just cannot vet people from those places. Now, it doesn't have to be religion specific, and this was the difference between some of the stuff that Trump originally said and then what it ended up being. So right. what he originally said was like, Muslim ban, nobody gets hit if you're Muslim. And I said, well, that's a little overbroad. I mean, there, there are certainly moderate Muslims who you might want to let in your country. If they're well qualified, they add to the country, they, they can get a good job and all the rest of that sort of thing. But, you know, when it comes to countries, like, how do you know who the hell's coming in from Syria? Yeah. How do you know who's coming in from the Gaza Strip? And, and the idea of widespread immigration availability from countries that have cultures that are not remotely like Western cultures, and in fact, cultures that, that deeply hate Western cultures, yeah. that's a horrible idea. I saw, I saw a poll out actually today uh, of Palestinians in the West Bank and, and the Gaza Strip, and it found that 75% of them approved of the October 7th attacks. And when it came to you know what, what percentage of them wanted to obliterate the state of Israel completely, it was in the high 80s. Yeah. So the, all, this, all this talk about how it's a bunch of moderate, peace-loving people. That doesn't mean that they're members of Hamas and they're not being targeted like members of Hamas. Israel's doing a good job of, of trying to avoid that. But it does mean that pretending all populations hold the same belief system is ridiculous. No, so if, if folks are newcomers to a country, they haven't acquired citizenship yet, if they're participating in violent protests or calling for genocidal eradications, out, they should go, they should right go, 100%. But yeah. we, have, we have no obligation in the West to ship in people who hate our civilization or who identify with terrorist groups. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Why, why do you think it is that Justin Trudeau, I mean, lots of the sort of woke leaders on the world are so partial uh, or at least deferential towards Hamas uh, and, and maybe even a bit critical of Israel? Uh, I think that, again, that oppressor-oppressed matrix cannot be undermined under any circumstances in their viewpoint. Yeah. Israel is a quote-unquote oppressor state specifically because it is a successful Western state yeah. in a very unsuccessful region of the world. And so when, when Justin Trudeau and a lot of people like him look at the Israelis versus the Palestinians, they don't see a long history of conflict with one side legitimately stating they would have to obliterate the other completely. Well, what, what they see instead is very powerful, large military, uh, many white people, and on the other side, many poor brown people. And because of that, that means that the Israelis are inherently the bad guys, and they must have done something exploitative in order to create that binary. And thus, the best thing to do is weapons down, that'll bring back the peace, negotiations, diplomacy. Now, you can say that that's ignorant, and it may be, for a lot of people it may be ignorant. Uh, it can also be malicious, because there comes a certain point where, I mean, when you're talking about a group that literally slaughters 
babies in their cribs and rapes women and drags them back to the hellhole that is Gaza. At, at that point, I think negotiations should probably be off the table. I don't, I don't see exactly why that, that should be a matter of moral equivalence. Right. Now, Trudeau has embraced the sort of Marxist mentality on every single issue on a level I think is probably unrivaled by any leader in the world, potentially. Um, and he does this despite the fact that there's massive backlash both at home and abroad. G7 allies, Five Eyes allies. Uh, the international community doesn't look at Canada in the same way it does. Why are political leaders like him so ideologically and dogmatically married to progressive agendas, even when everyone's saying, please, just stop? I think there's a sense in which it makes them feel very good about themselves. Uh, I think there, there's something very self-flattering about dissociating from you know, the, the elite class and saying, well, I, you know, but I'm not like them. Yeah. I'm not like them. I'm, I'm really, I'm, my own, I, I'm with you. I'm with the oppressed people. Yeah. And, you know, I know that I'm privileged and Justin Trudeau's a very privileged human yeah. being, one of the most privileged human beings ever to walk the earth. And, and so for him and for a lot of people who are like that, the way that you shed yourself of the privilege is by trying to ally yourself with the oppressed and the marginalized. And so he's certainly doing that in, in heavy measure. Uh, handsome Bernie Sanders is what I've been calling him for years uh, on, on the program, and, and he is a disgrace to his office, and I look forward to him leaving. Now, to what extent, obviously 84% of Canadians want new leadership, to what extent do you think that these people actually believe that, and to what extent are people within their office or they themselves simply use, utilizing the language of the left to achieve their ends? Um, I, I think that there's a hardcore base that actually understands what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, and then I think there are a lot of fellow travelers who, who, and this is one of the great sins of the West, who are just trying to be nice. Yeah. Saying, I just don't want to be offensive. You know, you, you, what, is it really nice to call out people when they say that they feel oppressed? Is it nice to tell them that they're not yeah. and that really they should get their act together and as Jordan Peterson says, make your bed? Like, is, is that a nice thing to say? And, and that niceness is really dangerous because when you say to people, I'm too shy to tell you to you know, get your act together, what you're really saying is you think they're incompetent, you think they're, they're foolish, you think that you need to paternalistically take care of them and fix their life for them. Um, and it makes a lot of people feel good about themselves and it makes them, a lot of people feel like they're being virtuous. Um, but the reality is that the people you're closest to tend to be also the people you give the most correctives to. The members right. of your family are the people who you say, well, you know, you could do X better. Yeah. I, I say this to my kids all the time. Like they, they come home from school and they didn't do great on a test. I'll be like, well, that's why we need to study. Let's sit yeah. down, we'll study right now. Like, it's not nice to say to my kid, you know, you did your best. You're actually kind of dumb. Like, you got to see. And you're going to get C's from here on out because, let's face it, and uh, we're going to make provision for you. Like, that would be a terrible thing yeah. to do as a parent. <laughs> I mean, an awful evil thing to do as a parent. But we do, it as a, but we do, do that as a society. Well, you're kind of touching on fraternal correction there. And a question that I have for you, uh, we, we talk a lot about sort of the left's disconnect from reality. Um, but we have seen, I mean, especially we have, to, we have to work on our credibility in Canada. We're fighting state-funded media giants. Um, so we have to be careful. But we have seen a number of pundits around the world on the conservative side who sometimes embrace maybe or go down ideological rabbit holes that aren't evidence-based. So you, you're kind of known for saying facts over feelings, how critical is it for people on the right or conservatives to be sure that they're self-examining and that they're checking their own confirmation bias? I, mean, I think that on a moral level, I think very, very serious. I think that we, we have an incentive structure that rewards fast over correct. Yeah. So right, right now, the way that it tends to work is that if you jump to a conclusion and the conclusion is wrong, you don't get punished. If you jump to a conclusion and the conclusion is right, we reward you richly. Yeah. And if you're the person who waits for the evidence to come in, or you just follow the evidence as it comes in, we don't reward you at all. So your incentive structure is very strong to be the person who jumps out in front of the parade and mm -hmm. takes the most extreme possible position because you might be right. I mean, it's actually very reminiscent of an old scam that used to get run in the United States and was made illegal as a mail scam. And the basic idea was uh, that there, there'd be a, yeah, uh, ten, there, there'd be uh, a one football game on, on a Sunday. And they, this, the scamster would take 10,000 10, pieces of mail and send 5,000 to a group yeah. saying that Team A would win, and 5,000 to a group saying Team B would win. And one of those teams would win. Yeah. And then he would take the subset of the team that won and do the same thing the next week. And it would gradually winnow down. But by the time he got to like 
game six or game seven, there's a subset of those people who'd gotten only right answers, right? And then they would buy into it. Oh my gosh, this guy's un he's infallible. There's no way he could possibly, he could possibly miss. Yeah. And th that dynamic really does apply to a lot of the grift that's going on politically. And that's strong on all sides. It's not just the right. For sure. You know, finally, I guess my question for you is we've seen the pendulum swing uh, very dramatically towards the left, towards progressivism. There's things today that the left would have condemned 10, 15 years ago uh, categorically. Um, have things gone too far, whether it's the attack on parental rights, transitioning minors, uh, the unconditional up to nine months abortion uh, laws we're seeing, have they gone too far to the point where the pendulum is going to start to swing back? Will sanity prevail? I mean, I, I think that it will, but first party to sanity wins. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that, that um, I'm going to mispronounce the name of the conservative candidate here. Um, what was it, Blivier? Pierre yeah. Pauliavre, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so he's terrific. Like, he, he's really good. Uh, he's really articulate. Uh, he, he seems to, you know, be in control of his faculties, which is more than we can say for most of our politicians <laughs> in the United States. Uh, and that, that's really good. But what we say in, in the United States, what I've said on the show a lot, uh, is first party to sanity wins. And part of the problem is that as the right gets driven out of its mind by the left, they tend to think, okay, well, we can't nominate somebody who's going to be sane. We need to nominate somebody who's crazy, man. We need to nominate somebody who's going to knock their block off. It's like, well, then that person has to get elected. Yeah. And is that person more likely to get elected or less likely to get elected? And so basically in the United States right now, what you have is this bizarre dynamic where both parties are certain that their guy cannot possibly lose to that guy, right. which is actually a really bad dynamic because that means you can run literally anyone. You can yeah. run like, you know, a geriatric daughter who can't speak words from his, from his face hole, or you can run, you know, a guy who's going to face four indictments next year and is, and is tweeting randomly in capital letters. Like those, those could or be your Captain candidates. Sox. Right, or, right, exactly. <laughs> like it, you, you can run pretty much any, because there's no way you're going to lose to that guy. That, that's yeah. a very bad approach. The American people, by the way, deeply dissatisfied with it. You can look at the poll data. The, 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 we have the same issue in the United States you do here. It's not just that 80% of people in the United States are, are dissatisfied with the current government. It's more like 70%, 75, you know, 65%. Yeah. But the number of people who are dissatisfied with the choice being presented to them politically is almost 100%. Everybody's like, what is this? Like, this is awful. And yet the people who are going to be nominated are likely to be the people who are, um, you know, the, the most, the most I'd say embodying of the of the id right. of, of politics as opposed to the reason of politics. The, the first party to sanity wins. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're headed there both in politics and in, in life in general. Things are pretty unhinged right now. Uh, ben Shapiro, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's a great pleasure. I want to thank the Wilberforce Project as well for, for allowing us to have this interview. And for everyone at home, I want to thank you so much for tuning in. For Rebel News, I'm Adam Sos. Sosa's interview with Ben Shapiro as our featured interview for the day. Uh, so I hope you thought that was interesting. I'm going to get ready for tomorrow's Rebel News Live. And if you're in the Calgary area, it's not too late to attend. Just go to rebelnewslive.com. There are some tickets available. Come for the speakers, but stay to hear Tamara Leach playing rock and roll. That really is something to see. I will be back in the studio on Monday where I'll have my proper setup and proper teleprompters and proper gear. But thanks for bearing with me as I've been on the road this week. It's been a pleasure to come to you from the road. And it's been for, you know, I always like traveling to get out into the field and see our people. There were so many Rebel fans at the Ben Shapiro thing last night. Until Monday, on behalf of all of us at Rebel News around the country and around the world, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. Thank you.